0: All right, everybody. How you doing? It's Friday. It's the, uh, I don't know, we're in the middle of August. It's the, uh, I don't know, but there's a lot going on. We're back with Brigadoon Radio, where we like to talk about topics and thought leaders and independent thinkers that are shaping commerce and culture. And we're back with our good friend, Gerald Ashley. Gerald, how are you doing? Uh,
1: very well, Mark. Um, I think this is episode three, where I claim it's unbelievably hot and can't continue. Um, we, we've made, met a big bureaucratic milestone today in the uk where some government officials have declared a drought quite what that means um it really is in their own language i mean in in practical terms the vast part of southern england has not had any rain for 40 days and um by english standards that is staggering and so everything you know is dying and people are kind of crawling around on all fours and what normally happens is when it becomes the big story, um, it rains next week. So I don't know, maybe by the next episode, we'll have loads of rain. But it seems to be one of these stories that builds and builds and builds. And when it peaks, suddenly it breaks and we, we go back to normal.
0: Well, the weather is very interesting on Europe. Uh, there's a glacier melting in Switzerland. Uh, yep. Rivers in Germany and Italy are drying up. Um, there are the, the wine fields, the vineyards of France. I don't know. Is this... Is it actually, I don't know, have we actually warmed the planet? Is it actually happening? Well, whatever,
1: whatever's happening, you're dead right about having an effect. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about the, um, the important Im- impact of lack of water in the European economy. Um, and as you say, there are, there are serious fires and things, particularly in Spain and France. Um, and I saw a little news clip yesterday uh, saying that British vineyards or Southern English vineyards are suddenly in fashion. Because with a really hot summer, we're going to produce sparkling wine that's up there with champagne. Now, of course, the French will uh, will dispute that immediately, though they may be voting with their feet. Because this last few years, some of the big French champagne houses have started buying small vineyards in England. So there we go. Well,
0: as we know, we can't use the word champagne. So how will you describe English sparkling wine? Do they have a fancy yes, name for it? Yes, sparkling
1: wine. And um, I know... I always remember in California, it's Californian champagne. They don't don't seem to mind upsetting the French so much. Um, And there is a Russian, there is a Soviet champagne, apparently. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we should try and give them some coverage and they'll send us a crate and we'll see if we like it.
0: Can we locate it? That would be, uh, I don't know. We have to go to the vault, talk to our friend, Joe Fraterini. Maybe he can get us a uh, smuggle a bottle for us. I'm sure these things are available if you know the right people. Well, speaking of knowing the right people, let's talk about Turkey. We're not talking about, I don't know if you know this, Gerald. Benjamin Franklin proposed that the turkey, the bird, be the national symbol of the United States of America. Did you know that? No, I I thought you guys just went straight for the bald eagle or whatever it was. Let's talk about Turkey, the country of Turkey, not the wonderful bird of the United States. Gerald, what do we know about Turkey? What's happening in Ankara as we speak?
1: Well, I think, it's, um, I think it's one of these countries where people find it difficult to read what's really going on, and that's very much the case at the moment. I mean, let's wind back a little bit through history. Obviously, there's a lot of history with the collapse of uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans and everything after the First World War. Right? Modern Turkey arrived. Lots of disputes that still run on to this day with Greece, and uh, that said turkey became a member of nato Um, historians may recall that the deal with khrushchev and kennedy was that um, khrushchev would um, get rid of the uh, missiles in cuba on their way to cuba in return for the americans not putting uh, ibcms in turkey so turkey's kind of and it's you know it's a cliche but it's kind of a crossroads of east and west and all the rest of it now the current the current government seems to be playing a game of both sides you know both ends against the middle but they're doing it in public which is kind of interesting you can almost see the country trick so what's going on where Turkey are making quite reasonable noises towards Putin Some of the Turkish banks are going to join this ruble payment system. Uh, Turkey have managed to broker some deal between Russia and Ukraine over some grain shipments. But equally at the same time, uh, they remain in NATO. And of course, they've been big suppliers of drones uh, to the Ukraine. Yeah. So I think the general feeling is they're treading a fine line here. Um, Maybe the reason is their interest is not actually to do with uh russia in the north but it's uh, south of the country and kurgis uh, sorry kurdistan and uh, all the, all these sort of issues they've got with that and, and their borders where the russians are essentially their allies so they're kind of got a foot in both camps um maybe they'll just kind of continue to play that though from what i read i think the west is a bit more concerned that they're not quite so strongly in the west orbit as they used to be
0: Yeah, I don't really have a good sense of Turkey myself. I mean, they have a huge presence here in D.C. They're one of the most beautiful uh, embassies, very prolific. You know, there's a huge Turkish-American dysphoria collection here in the U.S. Um, So it's certainly seen as a very important ally, um, even though it's certainly not the United Kingdom or France. But it does seem that Turkey itself is in a very interesting neighborhood as you allude to the, the long history and, you know, its placement on the map and what it has to do with Syria. So I don't know, maybe they need to play this game where they've got to be on all sides. And I don't know, they, as we've talked about before, maybe they're the back channel to the back channel, maybe Turkey yeah. is playing a, key, a bigger role in diplomacy and kind of keeping the world settled. And these uh, public situations where they're on both sides, maybe that's all choreographed. Uh, uh,
1: you know, um, I'm inclined to agree with that. Um, they have been a little bit more fractious publicly in recent months. Like They, they wanted to put the brakes on Finland and Sweden joining right. yeah. Um and then suddenly, oh, it went through all okay. And again, I don't know if you and I are probably two of the most cynical podcasters on the planet, but we, we kind of do wonder if we're seeing the theatre of politics Rather than the real politics or the real politique, if you like, that's going on in the background. Um, I think you're right. Turkey is one of these countries that's all things to all men, but I, I guess they have to tread quite carefully. But they seem to be successful
0: at it at the moment. Well, it's interesting too, and I just recall this in 2016 there was that famous coup attempt. Yes, um, that was suppressed, and that was <laughs> quite. I mean, I remember that was like broadcast live on television, and that's not that long ago. The whole backstory there, that'd be interesting to kind of dig on. And I mean, I'm, I suspect Turkey over the years has had a... Yeah, I think a you also,
1: yeah, you've also got to dig back into history that they became a, a deeply secular state with Ataturk coming in, in I'm going to get the, the year wrong, but it's somewhere towards the middle of the First World War, maybe just before the start of the First World War. And it was a big crackdown on Muslim religion and sort of putting uh sort of religious leaders firmly outside the political system and over the last 20 or 30 years that's been slowly dismantled and in fact turkey is now much more um got much more sort of religious stroke political element to it than it ever had and ergodin who is uh, president um has played to that constituency so it's a much more muslim type country if you like than a secular one compared with 30 or 40 years ago. So that's another element.
0: Religion, too, is also an interesting aspect because Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, tied into Kiev, tied into Moscow, and kind of that breakaway Christianity. Um, My understanding, like, the the Orthodox Church is tied into those connections to Turkey as well. So you wonder if the Russian-Turkey connection is even, in the background, religious as well.
1: I think that's right and I think you we can stretch our historic knowledge a little further and mislead viewers and listeners uh, ever more by pointing out that a lot of this is to do with the split of the Roman Empire the, right. east, the east and west and those sort of fault lines that sort of formed in the 300s and 400s AD are pretty much still there and you're quite right a lot of them have, have become institutionalized in terms of um uh, religion, even things like different dates of the religious calendar and uh, different religious rites and all the rest of it, so you would say, for example, the Russian Orthodox Church is much closer to Turkey and Greece than it is, certainly is to the Roman Catholic Church in uh, yeah in Rome
0: even so, the art the art the art and architecture as well the Byzantine nature of some of the uh, churches and temples in that part of the world in Russia and Ukraine have a yeah. very heavy kind of Byzantine Turkish influence
1: yeah we're back to one of our favorite authors and commentators tim marshall where, you know we are all slightly prisoners of geography and you know the geography if you sit in kiev is different from if you sit in geneva or berlin <laughs> or yeah. Istanbul. and you can't you can't get away from that and you know there's sometimes people have this sort of um wonderful idea that we can all pull together and it's one planet and one mankind but you just need to look out the window and see uh the geography, not just the politics, is so important. And, of course, geography is important at the moment because of the weather, which I'm sure we'll come on to.
0: What's your sense about Turkey going forward? I mean, do you, do you see them as one of the most important players in kind of world politics right now? Are they, are they one to watch? Are they overrepresented, okay. underrepresented in the news?
1: They're probably slightly underrepresented, but they were, I think people like to classify countries in all sorts of different ways, isn't it? They? But they're clearly a major regional power, put it like that. Yeah, you're not going to be doing anything much between the Balkans, right the way down to Israel, or right the way across to Iran, without Turkey having um, some say or some influence, or or being mm-hmm. against whatever may be going on. So they they're clearly an influential power, and of course they you know at the end of the day they control the Black Sea, and so that's yeah. another element in all of this
0: which is not, not a small thing at all. And it's interesting you brought up the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this will be a good transition to our next topic, because uh, here in the United States, we, we rarely, I mean, you have to be pretty well-educated and kind of a deep scholar to know about the ICBMs in Turkey. Um, you know, the story, the mythology here in the U.S. is that, you know, Kennedy <laughs> stared down the bad guys yeah. and the boats went away. But, uh, yeah, once again, backroom politics, there was you know, what we saw was not the whole story, which is a good transition, too, a linear world, ah, um, the linear world with simple, simple explanations in a very complex world. What well, are your thoughts I... on the linear world? You brought this up.
1: Yeah, I thought this up. So I better kind of, well, it's not an original idea, but I raised it. And um, <laughs> uh, it, it's this idea of the, the risks of gamification of the world, that somehow we can look at decision-making and risk in terms of a game. And people sometimes use chess or poker, Or some such similar game to act as an analogy for how the real world works. Um, I actually think that's all nonsense squared. And the reason I think that is because um, take the game of chess, right? You've got 64 squares, I think it is, 32 pieces, 32 pieces. You've got set rules on what you can do. So you, and then I make a move, you make a move, and we go back in this sort of ping pong linear fashion. That is totally different from how business commerce and politics works. I may invent a new product, uh, which is a competitor to you. You suddenly wake up and you've got the resources to make the next six moves in a row and crush me before I can do anything about it. Right? But there's, there's something about the human mind that likes the idea that we can somehow create a, a network of or, or a grid of certainty if we can frame it into this sort of linear ideas. And we're uncomfortable with the fact that most, most things are, are much more complicated. And I think this is why in the modern age we struggle with models. I mean, everything everybody's got a model. Over in the UK, the Treasury's got a model, the Bank of England's got a model. There are endless models for when people are going to live and die and all the rest of it. And they're, they're kind of okay. And they're okay until there's some new information. And when's the time you need a model to really work when there's some new information? So at the end of the day, you're driving the car by looking through the rear view mirror rather than out through the front. Now, this appeals to the bureaucratic mind because it's nicely ordered. Um, it appeals to politicians who want to say, well, I'm going to concentrate on transport or I'm going to concentrate on you know, interest rate policy or the economy or whatever. Um, it's just much more messy than that. And I think this is why we have problems nowadays of people who are increasingly disenchanted with politics, business models, forecasts, experts, all the rest of it, predictions, because they're selling something they can't actually deliver. Uh, and we're slightly stupid to buy it. You know, you shouldn't <laughs> buy this because, you know, it's, it's not that simple.
0: Well... Uh- yeah, I think that was before we got on there. I was thinking we were talking about this. Like I've probably listened to ten thousand political speeches in various forms, from big to small, policy speeches to you know chats at a backroom barbecue, and it does seem. And I've been a victim of this too, just in writing this stuff or helping people. You know, basically you want to find a way to explain to your audience what you're saying. So you want to look for simple stories and simple explanations. Yeah. I'm wondering if this this drive to simplify the world and combined with media communications this put us in a in a situation where we're, we're looking we're, we're overemphasizing simple numbers right we're not really having complex serious discussions or you know i can't remember the last time i heard anybody say i don't know you know it could be a football coach it could be a ceo it could be a politician they literally just said, i don't know like everybody seems to have to want to have an answer and uh my simple it's, solution it's,
1: it's because the audience wants an answer and then we'd rather have a wrong answer than no answer at all and yeah. so as you say um when somebody stands up and says well actually we're not at all certain how things are going to pan out in ukraine immediately the media and commentators start screaming oh the government's clueless a minister doesn't know what he's doing and all the rest of it <laughs> right. when, you think, when you think about it how, how ludicrous is the situation and uh, i'll draw in the uk where we've had quite a large number of ministers change because of the uh, defenestration of Boris uh, a, a few weeks ago. And we've got, you know, we had a health secretary who was in post, the previous one was in post for about six, seven months. Now, this is an organisation with one and a half million people. It's one of the largest employers um, in Europe. Um, how, you can't even, you know, you get your head around the organisation chart in six months, which quite <laughs> well. And yet these guys feel compelled to then get up on a stump or in a TV studio and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, you know. Uh, And we're seeing it with the Tory party um, uh, election campaign at the moment where candidates are saying things like, on day one, I'm going to be doing so-and-so. Well, how about do nothing and actually start to understand the, the depth and complexity of the problem before doing something? But of course, they get crucified if they if they take that approach.
0: Yeah, it's, um, the day one stuff I absolutely love because you're like, you know, you don't even know where the the, the coffee room is. But yeah, yeah on day one, you're going to save the economy. There's a great book. It's a bit old now. It's from it's about it's from 2014. I just remember it's called the Leading Indicators. It's a short history of numbers that rule the world, and you know, like just take GDP. There's numbers that we listen to all the time that is referenced like they're like the Holy Grail, they give you all the answers, they are the Rosetta Stone. And it just become baked into the system when in reality, they might not be the right numbers at all. And they're in their historic like I always think about the way we measure trade is from the post World War Two, it's like stuff, it's stuff we put into a box that shipped on a boat, right? It doesn't take anything about financial services, hospitality, Mm
1: -hmm. banking. Uh Yeah, we
0: measure stuff that we can, right? And putting stuff in a box and measuring it is much easier than trying to figure out the value of uh, free Google Maps.
1: Yeah, I would, I would leave, I'd leave listeners and viewers with this thought. You know, th- there was this mantra that um, if you can measure it, you can manage it. Right. And I would rather say, if you can measure it, you can misinterpret it, you can mismanage it, <laughs> or you can badly model it. Um, it doesn't follow that if you've got the data, you'll get the answer. In fact, what normally happens is people start with an answer and then they torture the data to death to to support their particular view. So I think it's, this whole narrow, vertical way of thinking is is not brilliant. Um, if you can put it in the show notes, it's a rather a long link, but um, there is a uh, fascinating blog by Dominic Cummings, of all people who I know is a... Uh, nice. M- eminence grease for some people uh, on his experience in the department of education around 2010 to 2012 he wrote this blog in 2014 and it's terrifying i mean the idea that the bureaucracy in whitehall are going to do anything other than save their own pensions um i mean i, I just find it just extraordinary and it, i i can't imagine it's got any better over the last few years since he wrote it i think too
0: uh as interesting is. A return maybe to probabilities i think the intelligence services or say the cia mi6 you know they don't talk in certainty they talk in probability and yeah. i don't know maybe we need a bigger return to that but we do at the same time as a society we kind of worship the gambler the big bet the bold prediction you know um i don't know yeah. maybe yeah. we are we as humans are to blame right
1: yeah no it's um if, if if you want to hang on a nice uh... A uh, nice bit of jargon it's called the ludic fallacy and the ludic fallacy is the idea that you can reduce everything to a form of gain and you can work everything out some things are just messy and um, it's why it's easier to predict credit card fraud than it is terrorist attacks because there's far less data um, yeah. but people want an answer people you know people say you know the big boss says give me the solution give me the answer and as you say they don't want to hear well actually to be honest we don't know <laughs> it's not the way it's not the way to advance your career So you know I don't know yeah, I,
0: I, I was at a, a cocktail party a few years ago and somebody was asking me about the you know Chinese Communist Party and who was going to govern and what was going to happen and I said I don't know but I go somebody's going to govern China who it is yeah. I don't know but it was like a solely it was a wholly unsatisfactory answer and like to predict like what's going to happen in 10 30 40 years time like I truly don't know I know somebody's going to govern it But it's a communist. Sure, it's possible. But do I know for sure?
1: No, it's it's a it's a fool's errand, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, people can't predict the football results next weekend. uh, And the idea that you're going to predict those sort of things on a long horizon, you can't. The one area that I think does play to prediction or at least a general trends is what we're talking about earlier. are there these big geopolitical blobs and geopolitical trends that never quite go away. They may ebb and flow, they may go very quiet, they may flare up, but there's always going to be trouble between Germany and Russia. There has been for yeah. the last 500 years, and it ebbs and flows, and poor old Poland's stuck in the middle. And that will always be the case. So those big strategic pictures may well be there, and they should help us inform us of of the the more micro things. but. The rest of it is just a game show. If you say, "Well, I know who's going to be the next president of China," you know. Well, let's
0: keep let's keep this game show going and make some more predictions that are full of fallacies. (laughs) Home technology. I don't know if you saw this, Gerald, but Amazon has bought Roomba. Roomba is a robotic disc-like vacuum. It goes around your room, and when it works, when in the behind the scenes, but there are, of course. People freaking out that Jeff Bezos and Team Amazon will now have all kinds of access to your home. They're going to know what you, what kind of crumbs you're leaving on the floor, and they're going to map out yeah. space. It's the Internet of Things coming into the room. Um, I don't know. Nobody seemed to have a problem with Roomba, but now that it's being acquired by Amazon, it's scary. I That's think
1: funny. I think it's like I think it's a human reaction to this. It's a little bit like CCTV. When yeah. you first realize that ctv CCTV you're quite annoyed oh, bloody hell why am i being filmed and then you forget it's on and you forget it's there so yeah. a lot of people sign up to things like siri and alexa and all this kind of stuff and they're a little nervous of it for a while and then suddenly it's incredibly important they need to ask alexa to turn the radio on because they're too tired to reach over and do it and i'm somewhere in the middle of all of this i think some of these things are great But I do worry about um, not so much whether Mr. Bezos knows what's in my fridge, but whether or not he can stop me from ordering stuff to put in my fridge. And I'm not obviously thinking of him. You can imagine the sort of people I am thinking about. But it does seem that increasingly our lives are on very thin sort of um, pieces of string. You know, we order everything online. It all gets delivered. uh, I mean i must admit i do nearly all my banking via my mobile phone and then about three weeks ago i couldn't find my mobile phone for about half a day mass panic and then i suddenly realized of all the all you know half of my life is on this damn phone and so is that sensible probably not but human nature i think goes for the path of least resistance and so the internet of things is here to stay but i think it comes with loads of problems
0: well i don't know i think i'm all in on it we have like the google home in our house and uh, i find you know we use it to you know ask the weather play songs do random stuff like that uh you know make funny jokes but it's interesting when i'm not in the space when i'm used to it you know i go into like a hotel room and i i literally will say you know hey what's the weather (laughs) and there's no device there i look like a total lunatic so uh Mm -hmm. being used to it um it's interesting this story there was a story in the New York Times in 2017 talking about how Roomba could start sucking up all this data. Yeah. And then it's only when Amazon got involved, you know, in the last week, if you do a search, so many reporters are saying, oh, this is alarming. But this has always been in the background. It's interesting how uh, stories become super important when elements come together or, re- you know, there's a bias to like, oh, this is new information to me, even though this, this kind of topic has been out. And there. it's but, it's got a vividness,
1: you know. Yeah. I can write the headline for you is your vacuum spying on you, you know? right exactly so it's kind of there straight away um i this stuff isn't going away but i i think one of the problems is we're building a world which lacks resilience and um we're building a world where everything involves electricity and that may be a problem quite soon um you know but certainly in europe electricity is going to be kind of an interesting topic
0: well, that and uh, getting back to our earlier discussion around linear, you know, linear techn- or linear trends, like there's just so much more data that we're absorbing. Like what can, I don't know, do we need to know more data? I'm, I don't know. I mean, is it good, is it bad? And right, and we're consuming all this stuff. Somebody's got to power it and uh, we're running into hydro power challenges uh, all across the world and, you know, uh, minerals that are needed, lithium batteries, et cetera. I don't know, it's <laughs> quite interesting. We're running, uh, we're in these two, as you talk about, we're in a two-speed world you know yeah I
1: think listening to us both you sound more optimistic than me Maybe I wouldn't say I'm a pessimist about these things but I I just do wonder if if things are on quite a thin piece of string and if that string snaps you know what do you what do you do I mean if we uh there's some vague talk of maybe power cuts in the winter in the UK I I personally think that won't happen, but power outages, if you like. If they do, um, I mean, I, you know, my life comes to a halt. Um, you know, I can't boil a kettle. I don't have an open fire. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to starve, I suppose. So I think, um, you know, there's these so-called, you know, there are lots of vital services that we just don't even think about. And, you know, we've got to be careful, I think.
0: In some ways, too, modern electricity at this scale is re- it's relatively new. I mean, we're only talking yeah. like 70 years post World yeah. War II. I mean, this isn't yeah. like we've been living like this for thousands of years. I mean, yeah. you're right. Absorbing all this electricity, even having this conversation transatlantic, you know, all the different computers involved, the, the sure. minerals and et cetera, involved, it's pretty wild.
1: I mean, obviously, one of the huge advantages of all this technology is this podcast. I mean, we, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do this 30, 40 years years ago but no you're right and and this is creating an engine of data i mean it's also the same business model from day one with the internet which is i'll give you something for free in return for your data and you don't even really bother or know that i've given you the data and then i aggregate enough of that to be able to sell it as an advertising or marketing medium and you know the the whole premise of cookies and everything all flows flows from that really
0: well, it is sad, like that idea that ultimately you're just going to sell, you know, more commercials or more marketing, you know, there, there is the promise that, oh, listen, if we collect all this data, we can have a smarter world, we can be more efficient, we can be more modern, but yeah, to deliver me a burrito faster, because they, you know, know that I eat tacos in my house because of my room of vacuum, I don't know, that doesn't seem like a lot of progress. No, but
1: now I think you may say that future progress is 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 measured in tacos rather than in Human happiness, uh, which is surprising in America, where you're supposed to be pursuing happiness every moment of the day.
0: Well, we're always pursuing. No, we have the right to pursue happiness. Oh, yeah. mean we,
1: you may, you may not. We be. have the
0: right. That doesn't mean we have happiness. We just have oh, the right. You don't to have happy. to be happy then. Okay. Yeah, you just have the right to pursue it. Come <laughs> on, man. Um, all right, it's interesting too. Somebody who lives in California for a few years. Uh, getting back to tacos, I have not had a good taco since I've crossed the Mississippi River. You come east in the U.S., tough to find a good so this taco. is
1: another one of these vital dividing lines in the United States. It's, rather than the Mason-Dixon line, we're talking about the Mississippi taco. Uh,
0: uh, oh, yeah, the Mighty Miss is uh, yeah. the, the line of demarcation for tacos. Yeah. All right, um, here we go. What are we reading and re- watching? Um, Let me go first.
1: I, well, I, I've been in the habit the last few weeks of um, – of only being able to answer one of these questions satisfactorily, and I think I might do that again today. Um, I got a birthday gift from um, some relatives, in fact, my brother-in-law and sister last week. And um, I I think they may vaguely watch this show. Um, And so they bought me another one of these sort of history books that will tell us all we need to know about the past. And this one is called The Opium War. And The Opium War, and kids in Britain would cover it in two sentences in you know, a one-year history uh, uh, class. Um, it's essentially how the British imported opium from India to China. And when the Chinese government didn't like what was happening to drug addiction and all the rest of it, we kind of generated a couple of wars because we felt the Chinese government was pretty dissolute. And, and kind great. of. Yeah, it was kind of, you know, it was, you are kicking in a, a, a sort of rotten door that kind of worked but of course it's had and this is a very fascinating book it's by a, maybe 10 years old now a lady called julia lovell who's a, a sort of um chinese uh, expert on um, history of china well she's english but is, uh, you know expert on chinese history and of course like all these things the echoes are still there so that the the, the feeling in china now of humiliation and uh being looked down to uh by the british in particular and maybe the western world in a broader sense still burns very greatly i think in in the chinese psyche so i'm going to plow through it again i don't why do people keep getting me these really large books this one's 300 pages <laughs> it's not just one opium War. there are two so there you go but i think it will um having known hong kong a little bit in my past um i think i can see where this is all going and it's it's why it's still a it's kind of still an
0: open wound, I think, with China. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that sounds like a great book. Definitely a worthy read. I mean, the history of that is front and center of today's Chinese Communist Party. And it wasn't that long ago in the span of, you know, 5,000 years of Chinese history. And it's important to know whenever China's kind of fallen, um, it's been invaded by outside foreign devils, foreign forces. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the Opium yeah. Wars was at the end of, a you know, one of the dynasties, which you're right, was weak and crickety and uh, the Brits took advantage of it.
1: Yeah, right. That absolutely agreed. And on in terms of watching, I'm going to kind of pass the baton back to you slightly because I don't think there's any dramatically interesting I've been watching the last couple of weeks. But there is a film coming out called The Menu, which seems to be, a, I don't know if it's out in the States yet, it seems to be like a very upmarket murder mystery about sort of um, maniac chefs. Yeah. know I've, I've it seems- seen the trailer. It looks fantastic. Is this um, Agatha Christie sort of meets Gordon Ramsay? I don't know. But anyhow, no, don't... That, that may be one to look out for. But otherwise, the topic I was going to raise with you that we, in the UK, we just finished the Commonwealth Games last week. And now there are moves to talk about having electronic gaming uh, as part of the Commonwealth Games. It won't surprise you to know that I'm sort of harumphing and declaring that this is the beginning, the end of Western civil- civilization. But I, it does amaze me that kids on keyboards could end up winning gold medals because they're playing some video game. Well, it's called eSports.
0: It's not called electronic no, video. No, no, called no, that's, e-sports. Just,
1: that's just a marketing term.
0: And um, no, you're right. It was in the Commonwealth Games. It's going to be in the Asian Games 2022. And there's huge speculation that 2024 Paris... We'll have esports in the Olympics, so esports is happening. Um, yeah, it's more being connected to data, being burning up electricity, playing sports, um, pretty wild. So, it's happening.
1: the future is not building stadiums or stadia, because everybody's going to be hunched around their PC at home watching all of this stuff.
0: Well, this, uh, yeah, I mean, as we're broadcasting this, there's millions of kids watching somebody play some video game on Twitch, and a lot of pro sports teams now are. On the side, building, you know, yeah. uh, esports teams and arenas, and uh, I did, uh, the the, I, the the audience is just absolutely, The numbers are kind of breathtaking. I mean, they're bigger I, than I, Premier I League. soccer.
1: slightly get my facts from here, but there was a. Was it either a football final or a World Cup final of some sort? Soccer in esports, where you everybody picks their own squad, and um, both sides had Ronaldo playing for them. <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's smart. Uh, uh, and this went maybe just to finish this point then, um, I've been very dismissive of the metaverse. Is this where the metaverse starts to turn into kind of real dollars and stuff, do you think?
0: Um, I mean, sports can be a gateway because, you know, you could talk about digital natives and people being used to it. But I think where metaverse is going to go, which is interesting, the last few weeks, two of the top executives at Meta slash Facebook have actually moved to London. So I think what they're going to try to do is go to the B2B route, uh, Enterprise Solutions. Yeah. Instead of doing this podcast like this, yeah, yeah, we'll do it in the metaverse, which will be, I don't know, more exciting, I guess. But I think it's almost like a two-pronged attack. So you have the youth that are used to all this stuff, but you know, it's going to be how do you get older people with the money and the budgets to say, yeah, we're going to do everything in the metaverse. Yeah,
1: I, well, you know my view on all of this, but I think it's just interesting as an element of, you know, the whole business The whole business of this business is trying to monetize this and, you know, turn all this stuff into dollars. And maybe these sort of things are the sort of things people will pay to participate in and, and watch.
0: I'll send you a deck. I'm going to put it together, a deck. It'll be all linear trends, which will answer all these very complex really. questions. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a book I'm reading. It's called Protocol. It's by mm-hmm. Capricia Chris, Chris, Penvik Marshall, I butchered her name, but she was the chief of protocol in the Obama administration. It's a great book, uh, The Power of Diplomacy, How to Make It Work for You. It's a great, interesting book. It's tidbits about her experience working at high-level State Department, White House, protocol events traveling around the world, oh, yeah, Obama, I, but also uh, how, to, how to act appropriately in the world of business and your own individual life. Yeah, no, I, I vaguely
1: saw a book review for it last week, and it does have a, a very good book. It's one of those sort of insider insights that actually is a use rather than just general gossip.
0: Yeah, I know there's a lot of... She's got several chapters in here about how-tos and things to look out for. And, you know, some of it is uh, common sense, but, you know, uh, dealing with diplomats and keeping everybody happy and through different customs and traditions. It's a good book, yeah. so... And uh, pro- Protocol seems to be solely dedicated... To the real world, to the real verse. I don't. We haven't done metaverse protocol yet, so.
1: No, well, we're screwing enough things up in the real verse. So
0: before we move on, I think a show I've been watching is on uh, HBO here in the states. Industry. It's about these young bankers in London that are, uh, you know, out to save the world. Save the world. Yeah. I make a lot of money, but <laughs> great soundtrack. You know, fantastic. Everybody's beautiful, sexy, smart. You know, the way I imagine banking in London. So, oh yeah yeah no
1: that's um that's uh, absolutely absolutely right i mean it's uh, you know um it, of course it's um uh, there have been loads of these shows so over, over the years and there have been loads of films things like the wolf of wall street and um uh the what the big short and all these things and they they sort of get it right but they also kind of get it royally wrong but then that's probably true of every tv program or medicine or cop shows or all the rest of it they get they get some of it right i mean what they never get right is the sort of sheer tedium of box ticking and form filling and, <laughs> uh you know regulation and all uh, and all this stuff in banking and i'm sure if it's cop shows you never have a whole episode of a cop show where they're moaning about they've got all these forms to fill out because of the arrests
0: <laughs> yeah that would be pretty dreadful television speaking of television to our friends in Rome. Hey, what's up? We're ready. They're on holiday. That's uh, true. They're on holiday. Okay. And, okay. Okay. Um,
1: you know, I'm 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 going to fire a warning shot at them now. If they don't, you know, back up their ideas, we we, we may get offers from elsewhere. <laughs> we may not. We may not. But you know, we we are available. Is I think what we're saying? Well, as, we, as
0: we as uh, we chat about this week, Apple is getting heavy into the uh, podcasting game. With they're going to build studios and build more content. So. I don't know maybe we go to uh the apple empire yeah i mean if
1: you know if we want to be associated with that name we'd have to you know we'd consider them i guess
0: (laughs) we'd take a meeting at least
1: yeah we yeah we we take the call we take the call definitely
0: (laughs) all right gerald thank you very much happy birthday and uh we'll see you in a few weeks great enjoyed it take care ciao